Good morning. Uh, how's everyone doing? Oh, groovy. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this day of worship and rest. Thank you for a chance to sing to you and remember your mercy and your goodness. Pray that you would bless us. I pray that you would be with those in the congregation uh, and those we love and care about who are sick or suffering or going through serious problems. I pray that you would comfort them, heal them, and restore them. And I pray that you would be with me as I preach and be with all of us, and that what I say would please you and that it would be useful to everyone who hears. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. This is week two of, oh, there it is, Faith of Our Fathers, which is a series where the title tells you everything you need to know. One, it's about faith. Two, it's about our fathers and mothers in the faith. Uh, remember the way that the book of Hebrews defines faith? Nathan read this last week. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I don't know that there's a simpler or better definition of faith anywhere in the Bible. That's an easy one. The conviction of things not seen. And I want to say this is the key verse for this entire series because we're talking about men and women who had the faith to deal with unseen spiritual realities and believe in the promises of God, believe in things that they could not see or touch. They live their lives that way. Today we're going to see how Noah's faith teaches us about our faith and how Noah's story applies to us and teaches us how to live our lives. Here's how I want to talk about Noah's story today. One, believe the warnings. Two, build the ark. And three, inherit the earth. Believe the warnings, build the ark, inherit the earth. All right, you got that. First, a little bit of background. Noah was just like you and me. He was a man. He was made in the image of God. He was a sinner. He needed to be saved from his sins. All right, so far, so good. But he lived so far back in human history, kind of like Adam and Eve, that we struggle to put ourselves in his shoes. Maybe you don't. I do. So what was it like? Or put ourselves in his sandals, right? Whatever they wore back then. I don't know. Well, Noah lived much closer to the fall than we do. Much closer to that moment where Adam and Eve sinned and plunged the whole world into ruin plunged us into the ruin of sin, plunged the whole world into the ruin of death. And that was within living memory of Noah. But when I say living memory, here's what I mean. Uh, right after the fall, lifespans were still very long. Adam lived 930 years. That's what the scripture says. And it's not myth or exaggeration, it's history. Hard for us to wrap our minds around that. Think of these crazy long lifespans as a marker of what we lost. God made us so well. Death was not what we were made for. He made us so well that even when sin entered and ruined us, it took a, a lot of generations before our lifespans got as short as they are now, today. So these people could live centuries, and a lot of them did. And because Adam lived 930 years, if you read Genesis 5 and you do the math, there's some pretty simple math you can do, you'll realize that Adam was still alive when Noah was born. 
Noah's nine generations down the line. Adam would have been 869 years old, by my math. You can check it yourself when Noah came on the scene. That's kind of wild, right? Everyone on earth at the time knew Adam and Eve done a bad thing. We used to live in a paradise. Now there's death. The Garden of Eden is blocked by an angel with a flaming sword. We can't go back in there because of sin. And they all knew about Cain and Abel. They knew about the first brothers and the first murder. In fact, everyone on earth at the time was descended either from Cain or from Cain's younger brother, Seth. Seth was the son that Adam and Eve had after Cain murdered Abel. Think of him as a kind of replacement Abel. Seth was like the good son, the faithful son, the good brother, the God-fearer. That was Seth. And Noah came through the line of Seth, not the line of Cain. And one other thing to remember as we talk about Noah, it's easy to think of this as a primitive time. You know, our pagan world loves the idea of the caveman and his stooped shoulders and his grunting and you know, his clubbing women over the head and whatever, you know, whatever it is. That is how we are taught in elementary school to think about early history. But when you read Genesis, that's not what you get. I mean, think of this. Whatever you do for work, if you had several centuries to keep doing it, how much better would you get at it? What do you think you could grow your trade or your skill set into? If you had 600 years, 700 years to be an engineer, what, are you going to get dumber? No, you're going to build more and more advanced stuff. So we don't really have a good visual for what this world was like, but it was sophisticated. In Genesis 4, we read about these guys inventing musical instruments, animal husbandry, blacksmithing. These people are technical, they are savvy. So Noah, think Noah and building the ark. God gives Noah a kind of blueprint, right? But the ark is not a birdhouse. The ark is a huge engineering project. Noah has to have skills. He has to have tools. We don't really know what those were. We just know he had to have them. So this, these people are sophisticated. And they're evil. This is a wicked civilization. It's very bad. Uh, the serpent deceived Eve in the garden, right? Most of Eve's children at this time are like, yep, we're on board with the serpent. They buy into the deception. They don't want to worship their creator. They want to worship and follow the one who undermined what the creator did. And that is what they do. And they have hundreds of years to practice. Hundreds of years to practice rebellion and evil. Hundreds of years of life per person to do this. Think of the most evil person that you know. I bet you can think of someone, right, where you think, that guy was particularly, like, that was an evil guy. That was an evil woman. Or if, you, you know, maybe you've seen Hannibal Lecter in the movie. You're like, yeah, that fictional character, that was an evil guy. But whoever it is, I'm going to guess that they didn't live to be 100 years old. I'm going to guess that they died. And their evil was limited. Well, not these people. So try to imagine the world that they built advanced civilization of some kind, what did it look like, don't know, and then add to it, I think, add to it living hell. Add that element to it. And think about, think about a world of pride and greed and murder and sexual sin. 
that's not restrained by the power of the gospel. That's not restrained by, there's no Ten Commandments on any courtroom wall. There's no basic structure in society. Now, I'm being a little bit simplistic because God was known by some and he was preached by some, but that was a small minority. So this world, things were bad. They were nasty. And that brings us to Noah. And where, first of all, we're going to see that Noah believed God's warnings about what was coming down the pike. Genesis 6, 5 through 7, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So God regrets even making us because the thoughts of our hearts were only evil continually. So it sounds kind of like hyperbole. I don't know that it was. But the passage goes on in verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor. Noah, remember, was a sinner. All men are sinners except one. His name is Jesus. Noah was a sinner. But he found favor, which is to say God favored him. God decided to love him. And none of us deserve God's favor. If we deserved it, we wouldn't call it favor. We call it just desserts. It was favor. Now, what's the New Testament word for favor? It's in a lot of the songs we sing. It starts with a G. Grace. grace. Right. We don't deserve God's grace. Um, and because of God's grace and kindness to Noah, Noah had faith. And Noah walked with God, which is what verse 9 says. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. God's grace changes us, and it changed Noah. He had faith, and because he had faith, he was ready for the warnings that God was about to give him and for the plan. It's Genesis 6.11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. I'm getting the impression this place was corrupt. Are you getting... How many times does it have to repeat, right? It was bad. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. No one knows what gopher wood was, by the way. <laughs> they debate. Anyhow, God gives Noah the specs for this project in an old form of measurement called cubits. Cubit is about a foot and a half. And as you hear the details, you might notice what a number of people have noticed about this, which is that this thing sounds a lot more like a house than a boat, right? Genesis 15, this is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 550 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark, finish it to a cubit above, and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Well, the people of faith, God's people, we get special warnings. We get the intel. We learn about the future from God, and you and I are the same. The life of faith is a life of learning about the future from God, directly from God. 
Noah heard it firsthand. I have determined to make an end of all flesh. God is about to drown everyone as a punishment for their sins. His judgment is coming. The flood is going to come. It's going to sweep all the wicked away and leave behind a restored earth, a renewed earth. And you and I have the same kind of warnings. The New Testament just keeps repeating these warnings over and over again. Jesus says, I'm coming back, I'm coming back, not with water this time, but with fire. And this will be the final cleansing, the judgment to end all judgments, the restoration to end all restorations. You better be ready. I'm coming like a thief in the night. You don't know when. In fact, in Matthew 24, when Jesus is talking about this, he compares it to Noah's time. He says, it's going to be just like that. People were busy getting married. They were doing their thing. And then the flood came. No one was ready except the one who had the warnings and believed them. And that was Noah. And that's the intel. Now, you and I could believe the warnings or we could say, nah, it's, it's cool. Um, it's cool. I mean, I'm sure my kids, they said the sinner's prayer. So what does it matter to me how they live after that, Right? Uh, yeah, I was baptized, so it's probably cool. Or I just think God can't expect too much from me, not more than I'm able to give, because that just doesn't seem fair. Um, and I mean, it's not like I'm going to give my life to a religion, right? How seriously do we take the warnings? And on the, uh, this, the other side of every warning, because a warning is like a coin, the warnings on one side, and on the other side is a promise. Always they go together, every time. And there's already a promise implicit in what God is telling Noah. Because why else do you warn someone? Well, you want them to be saved. And God makes that promise very explicit in, in verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. God intends to save Noah. That's why you warn someone. You want to save them, right? There's a promise attached, and the promise is to live, to be forgiven, to be resurrected, to be with God, to come through to a renewed and restored earth. And it's not about what anyone deserves. Noah didn't deserve not to get swept away like everyone else. And you and I don't, get, don't deserve to get out from under the fire that's coming. We don't deserve that. That is a gift of God. And you can't get away from warning people. I think we all feel some discomfort, right? You share the gospel. There's that warning edge. Sometimes you don't want to have it. You need to be saved. Oh, well, you already put yourself in the hole because what's the next question if anyone even cares to talk with you? Saved from what? And there you go. You have to warn them. Can't escape warning. Do you believe God's warnings? Hebrew 11.7 says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, 
in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah believed God's word, and that made all the difference. And we need to believe them too. And if we believe them, we'll do what Noah did, which is we'll build the ark. Let me explain. First of all, that's what Noah did. Genesis 6.22, and Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And then I don't think I'll read that. It's probably up on the screen. Noah did it. He built the ark. And something happened as soon as Noah did that. As soon as Noah started the construction project, Noah's faith became visible. No one can see your faith. No one can see your love. No one can see your hope. It's not visible. It's inside your heart. It's hidden. But when you obey God, it becomes visible, shows up. Uh, And Noah's ark is about as conspicuous as you can get. It's It's hard to hide your commitments when you have to build this giant boat, house, thing in a place that doesn't make sense when there's no water around for it to go on And there's no way to move something this big. This is silly looking. This is an obvious invisible commitment. It's obvious to everyone around him. Sometimes it's nice to be a follower of God on the sly. People don't have to know that you believe in the cross of Christ because it sounds silly. Nope, God's not having any of that. If you believe the warnings, you build the ark. I mean, and think of the time and the money it cost him. Noah's invested in this life of faith. He's putting himself into it. His time, his money, all his stuff is going into his life of faith, and everyone's going to see, my neighbor is crazy. He's crazy. Hey, sweetie, look at this. Hey, Noah, when's that flood coming, buddy? It's coming. You know, Noah, we've been alive like a thousand years. I mean, I went and I talked to Adam. He said there's never been a rain big enough to lift anything like what you're making. I mean, are you not aware of human history, Noah? (laughs) This has never happened. It's going to (laughs) happen. All right, bud, you can keep building that ark. (laughs) But then the rains start coming. No one's laughing. They wish they were on the ark. No one's laughing. There's something unseen, something invisible in the future that Noah had faith for. So he built it. When Jesus comes with his angels in flaming fire, that's how first, no, Second Thessalonians 1 talks about it, we'll be too late at that time to be saved. That's too late. Noah builds the ark. He gets in with his family. All the animals come to him, and as these massive rains start to come down from heaven, and as the fountains under the earth start to bubble up, kind of like all the pipes in your basement had burst at the same time, God himself shuts the door of the ark, shuts them in. Noah and his family and the animals are safe inside. Noah built the ark. You and I need to build the ark. We need to live lives of faithfulness. Our faith should be visible. It should cost us something. I mean, if the warnings of Jesus... The promises of Jesus are true, and we believe them. Let's act like we believe them, right? Now, 
do you know? There's been consensus since the time of the early church among pastors and Bible teachers that Noah's Ark points also to something more specific, making a pretty general point. But Noah's Ark points to the church. It is a type of the church. Maybe you remember what a type is in the Bible. A type is a person or a thing that points to a greater thing that's coming. So it's kind of like the way my shadow points to me. My shadow isn't me. Word to the wise. But if you, I don't really cast a shadow very well up here, but if you see my shadow coming through a doorway, you can probably bet that I'm behind it, right? Because I'm the one casting the shadow. Well, a type is like that. A type is like that. A type is like a shadow. The real thing is coming behind it. And so we say King David is a type of Christ, a shadow of Christ in a few different ways. I mean, one, he was the king of Israel, right? But he wasn't the king, the king, the true and eternal king of Israel. No, no, he pointed us to him. The true and eternal king of Israel is Jesus, and David was his shadow. You understand? Jesus casts a lot of shadows in the Old Testament. The church casts several shadows in the Old Testament. I'm saying this is one of them. But follow me here for a minute. You remember the temple is a shadow, a type of the church. I talked about that in the King Josiah sermon, if you were here for that. Back in the day, the temple, it was the house of God. It's where you went. If you wanted to find God, it's where you went. Oh, you want to know about God? Oh, you want, you want, you want your sins forgiven? You want to be part of his people? You got to go to the temple. It's where you go. Ordinarily speaking, that's where you go. So today that temple building is gone, right? It's gone. What's left? We are. We are. The temple was a shadow. We, God's people, are the permanent temple. We are the capital, the capital C church, you know, not just this local church, but all believers through time and space. We're the temple. And this local body is an expression of God's temple. So we're his, his house, his building, his family, his body, his nation, his bride, and yeah, his ark. We're all those things. That's why if you want to find Jesus, you go to the church because Jesus is here. He lives inside of us together by his spirit. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, it says this about our lives as Christians. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's pretty explicit. We're the temple, we're the house. Jesus lives here, he lives inside us. All right, think of all the early disciples of Jesus in the faith, and coming back to the ark. Think of what it took them to build the church and to be a part of it. Uh, it takes faith to build the church. It takes faith to be a part of the church. It takes faith. Uh, especially after you get a whiff of sin and conflict, your own sin, the sin of others. Uh, it takes faith to commit your life to the church. You know, love people inside. You're going to spend time invested in them, going to have them over for dinner. People are sinners, man. It takes faith. Noah built the ark. The ark has more the features of a house than a boat. That's on purpose, kind of a special floating house. 
The temple, special kind of house. God's people, a special kind of house. So you see the parallels I'm drawing here, right? Took faith to build the ark. Took faith to go inside. Takes faith to build the church. It takes faith to come inside, be part of things. So I hope you can see some of the reasons why it's been usual to think of the ark as a shadow or a type. Um, I'm sketching these things pretty briefly, but hey, if you're not convinced, that's okay. Because here's the fact. We got to apply what Noah did to our lives. And what's the biggest and most conspicuous way that you and I are going to be marked out? What's, what's the biggest way that our faith is going to be visible? Yeah, you could die a martyr for Christ. And that would be amazing. Your faith would be visible. But ordinarily, day to day, the slow process of building the ark, guess what? You're going to be part of a church. God makes us a part of his people. If you love Jesus, you'll love his body. Not just in some big abstract sense, but in a local sense that costs you something. Uh, you'll be part of the mess at some local church. Could be here, could be another one. Uh, if you love God and his holiness, you're going to love the place his holiness dwells. Yeah, that's his temple, his house. If you're saved by faith, you're going to put your faith to work. Where? In the place of safety and mercy, love and discipline. The place God has put on the earth to carry you safely through, it's the church. So it's possible some of you might think I'm overdoing it. <laughs> How strongly I'm emphasizing the importance of the local church. You know, there's a famous saying about this. You may have heard it. Uh, it's from an early church father named Cyprian. From around 200 AD, I have no idea what else Cyprian said or did. But he said this, No one can have God as a father who does not have the church as mother. Doesn't that sound edgy? Sounds edgy to me whenever I hear it, but it is what the scriptures teach. It is. When I was 21, I left my hometown of Chattanooga. I moved west to Tacoma, Washington. I'd begun to be quite disconnected from my old church in Chattanooga for a lot of reasons, most of them to do with my own sin, some of them to do with the ways I felt let down. And whether or not I was right to feel let down is not the point of this story, although I know that a lot of you can empathize. You felt let down. You've even been let down, maybe even betrayed by a local church. It does happen. We are sinners. And so when I arrived in Tacoma, I started going to my friend's church. I had no intention of plugging in. <laughs> I mean, I didn't want to not go on Sundays. I felt maybe that would be some kind of spiritual dissonance. I didn't want to go to hell, but I didn't want to be involved in the church. If I could just kind of get in on Sundays and get whatever benefit I guess there would be and then be just whoop, invisible as far as the church was concerned the rest of my life. I don't even think I would have done that. But by hook and by crook, I got dragged into community. <laughs> I, got, I got just dragged into getting to know people. I blame one friend in particular. It's clearly from the Lord. Um, I, was, I felt like I was just being forced to socialize, get to know people, attend church events. I didn't like it. I had no respect for these people. I grew up in church. I really didn't. Um, and I had no faith that God would use this in my life. And I wanted to go on Sunday, but that's it. And I, You know what? I think if that had happened, if I had just gone on Sunday and remained disconnected, I think, in my opinion, is I would have eventually stopped even that. And then I would have been alone with my sin. I already felt pretty alone, even just 
popping in for Sunday service, pretty alone with my sin. And I think if that would have happened, I would have been done at some point. I think I would have left the faith. I think I would have stopped believing God's warnings. Humanly speaking, that's the trajectory I think I was on. I know for a fact it's a common trajectory. I know it, I've seen it. But God had other plans. I mean, he brought me into that church, he opened my heart to those people, and he opened their heart to me for sure. And through their love, over a period of about 10 years, I began to grow in the faith. And I began to like fight my sins, resist them, began to be useful sometimes to serve. I was, I was loving that church. I was doing my small, weak part to build it, to build it. At some point, it became clear to me that without that local body of people, I would have been dead in the water, pun intended. That's my story. What about you? You want to help build the church. You think the local church is really that important? Is it just an accessory or an option? Useful part of your spiritual life when it's useful. <laughs> plenty of times it's not. Let's keep it at arm's length. It takes faith to build the church. It takes faith to go inside the church. It takes faith. It's hard. But God has given us one another. And again, here I go with the edge. This is Scripture's edge. He does not intend for us to be saved apart from one another. All right. So believe the warnings, build the ark, and then if you do that, you will inherit the earth. Because that's what happens. When you put your faith in God and he makes you a part of his people, it's a people with a bright and awesome future. That's what it is. That's what happened to Noah and his household. He was in the ark a long time. A long time. You probably remember 40 days and 40 nights, right? Remember that? 40 is an important number in the Bible. Like Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days, 40 nights. Well, that's just while the rains were falling. After that, man, he was floating along for several months. And then the ark came to rest on top of some mountains, the mountains of Ararat. And then he was in the ark for several more months <laughs> with, his, with his kids and their wives and his wife and lots of animals, stinking animals, months and months and months. Until by the end of his time in this stuffy wooden houseboat, Noah had been in there for almost a full year. Genesis 8:13. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried off from were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Noah had waited patiently in the ark. I don't know how patient he was by the end, but he stayed there. It takes patience to be a Christian. It takes patience to wait on God's promises to come true. You got to wait. Now, what did Noah see when he came out of the ark? He saw what he'd been waiting for. He, what he really got, what he really got, was he got a preview of the new heavens and the new earth, the recreated and reborn earth. 
that you and I are waiting for when Jesus comes back. That's what he got. He got a preview because the earth was clean. I've got to imagine there was some beautiful green grass sprouting and some trees starting to come back. And then Noah saw this, like, remade world, right? It had been washed clean. It was coming up new. The animals are going out. It's like, dude, starting over. This is for real. And Noah and his family were saved, and they were the seed of new humanity. I mean, God's judgment had done its work. All the wickedness was gone. It was gone. The world belonged to them. They inherited it. It's too bad it was only a temporary cleansing of sin and evil because you know that Noah and his family, they carried that sin in their hearts on the ark. Sin actually was a stowaway on the ark. And it came into the new world too. Because this was just a preview. This wasn't the final done deal, perfect earth, no more sin. That's not happening until Jesus comes back. But when he does, well, Matthew 5, 5, remember Jesus says this to us if we're meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He's coming back. He's coming back. He's going to vindicate his people who look so stupid (laughs) building their arcs in their backyards. And when he comes back, sin is going to be gone. It's going to be gone from our hearts. It's going to be done. And our bodies are going to stop dying. And there's not going to be any more mosquitoes. (laughs) How great is that? (laughs) Mosquitoes stowed away too, I guess. We're going to see Jesus face to face. We're going to see him face to face. And that's what's going to make the earth that we inherit beautiful and bright and worth living in, is our Savior's face. My Savior and my God. Christ, my Savior and my God, like we just sang. That's what we're looking for. That's Noah's journey, and that's it's our journey. It's a journey of faith. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the story of Noah. We pray that we would have faith like him. Help us to believe the warnings and the promises of Scripture and tell others about them. Help us to build the ark by loving and being a part of Jesus' body, the church. And Father, we pray that you would please bring us safely through the coming wrath to the thing that we want and hope for most, to inherit the earth and see our Savior's face. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.